0: Well, let me extend another good morning to you. Uh, Christmas is a blessing, is it not? It's a hectic, difficult, tiring, sometimes awkward, sometimes even painful blessing. And uh, I know it's not the early service, but I hope that you're awake this morning. Are you awake? Because you know, there are only two types of Christians. There are those Christians who wake up and say, good morning, Lord. And there are those who wake up and say, good Lord, it's morning But we're at the 10.30 hour this morning, so hopefully everybody is awake. Go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be studying verses 15, 16, and 17 this morning. But before we read those verses together, I need to provide for you some background on 1 Timothy. Again, we're taking a two-week break from our study of Mark, and today we find ourselves in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is referred to as one of the pastoral epistles. And they are called the pastoral epistles because they are letters of personal correspondence from the Apostle Paul to pastors in different churches that he helped establish on his missionary journeys. And young Timothy, who was likely 30 to 35 years old at the time of Paul's writing, is one of those pastors, one of those church leaders. And he has been left as the pastor-elder for the church at Ephesus. And after leaving Ephesus in Timothy's able care, Paul gets word of some issues there. And from Macedonia, Paul pens the first of two instructional letters to his protege, Timothy. In reading the New Testament epistles, you clearly see that Paul thought very highly of Timothy. We read in Romans where Paul calls Timothy his fellow worker. In Corinthians, he calls Timothy his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. In Philippians, a book co authored by Timothy, Paul speaks of his proven worth. Throughout the New Testament, he calls Timothy brother. And in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he refers to him twice as my child. Paul and Timothy had just a beautiful depth to their relationship. It was the type of relationship that is built when you are traveling together and praying together and discussing the finer points of doctrine together, confessing sin to each other. These two were friends really in the richest sense of the term. The letter tells us that it's designed to aid Timothy as he fights the good fight of faith. It's to serve him as he's organizing and governing and pastoring the church. One commentator I read calls First Timothy the heart of ecclesiastical organization. Which means this book is a prescription of what a local church should be and how it should be led. But at the same time, it's not a church help book in the way that we think of church help books. There are a lot of church help books out there. You go to the Christian bookstore and you'll find just a big section of church help books. And some of them are good books, books by guys that I trust and guys that I think really highly of and know a whole lot more than I do. And I'm not against church help books. But the difference between a modern day church help book and, and the letter to Timothy is that this letter is the very word of God. So, Paul isn't guessing here. He's not experimenting. He's not telling us what worked in his context. He's delivering special revelation to his young brother and co laborer in the gospel. The substance of what is here are the words penned here that this is God breathed, useful for correction, and profitable for every good work. The book consists of two major sections. Section 1 is basically chapter 1, which proves to the reader that that Paul understands the context in which Timothy is serving. Paul Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and this introduction, this chapter 1, confirms his long history with the church there. The rest of the book makes up the second section, and it consists of practical instruction on these issues that are facing the church. And... The result there is kind of a baseline encouragement to Timothy to guard the good deposit. That's the language used. And it basically means, Timothy, guard the gospel. I planted the gospel there. It's taken root there. It's bearing fruit there in Ephesus. Guard the good deposit. Guard the gospel. So our scripture text for this morning closes really the first section of the book. Let's read it together as Paul shares what he was saved from, and what God saved him for? Appreciate uh, Dustin reading this for us earlier. I'm going to read it again. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes: "The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of who I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason: that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience." as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. So from that, I want to I walk through each verse, 15, 16, 17, and closely look at three important features those three features are the gospel itself paul's conversion and then his response to salvation or the sinner's response to salvation so chapter 1 verse 15 the gospel what does this text say about the gospel well there's no reason to be cute here the gospel is very clear in this text it's explicit christ jesus came into the world to save sinners there it is a concise gospel summary if there ever was one. And I like this summary because there's no adjective between the words save and sinners. So it's not penitent sinners, it's not suitable sinners, not well-deserving sinners, it's just sinners. Being sinful is the only condition to be eligible for the saving grace of the gospel. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the first thing The text tells us about that beautiful statement is that it is true and to that you'd likely say well well jay hello it's in the bible of course it's true but look at the way verse 15 spells it out this is a trustworthy statement paul actually uses this phrase five times in the pastoral epistles five different places He puts emphasis on what he's writing by setting it off with a disclaimer. This is a trustworthy statement. This is true. And it's similar to what Christ would do when he taught. Christ would frequently say, truly, truly, I say to you. And it's not by using a disclaimer that that what is being said is somehow more truthful than the other ideas that Paul or Jesus taught. Their body of work is not entirely trustworthy. However, by marking the statement off this way, Paul is saying at least two things about it. First, he's saying that this statement is is weighty in its truth. Its implications are far-reaching. There are things that, that put your doctrine, there are truths that put your doctrine on the right trajectory, and this is one of those things. So if you get anything Paul is saying, get this, Christ Jesus, the Anointed One, the Savior, came into the world to rescue sinners. The law doesn't save. Good people aren't saved. There are no good people. Everybody, everywhere, and for every time are categorically sinners. Christ came because self-salvation was impossible. This point has to be clear. That's the first thing. Second, the statement is set off because it's confirming what is likely already established doctrine in the early church. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This was already an informal creed in the church. This is about early 60s AD. And Paul is validating it to Timothy by saying, this is a trustworthy statement. You guys use this statement. This statement's kind of bouncing around the church. Believe this. This is true. Paul is endorsing truth as it's being established in the church. And that should be refreshing to us in a day where where many, many lay no claim to truth. Truth has become this slippery thing. It's like nailing jello to a wall. Nobody quite can get truth. No absolutes, no moral standard. To many, we in the church and outside of the church, we we're just simply adrift. But this statement, this early church statement, is true, and it's unchanging. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So to those who say that, that the early church was kind of amorphous in its doctrinal distinctives. they need to listen to this. We have right here in verse 15, 25 years after Christ's resurrection, before the New Testament canon was even close to being sealed up and affirmed. We have an established theological statement. and Paul is confirming it. He's saying this is absolutely true. Which brings us to the second aspect of this concise gospel statement. And it's that the gospel is incarnational incarnational in saying that the gospel is incarnational as it relates to verse 15 I'm saying it it involves the truth of the incarnation it involves the first advent the, the baby in a manger that we sang about this morning the gospel necessitates the divine and eternal son coming into the world to handle a problem that we could not handle ourselves it's the problem of sin It involves Christ Jesus putting on flesh to save sinners. In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Here's how one guy tweeted it this week. He said, The Creator comes to the creation to reconcile the creation to the creator. That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. That's this gospel element. That's why Jesus came. I got this from a devotional from a guy named Jack Miller. He tells the story of a missionary linguist. He says, A missionary linguist was working in a remote village in in Laos. Excuse me, Laos. That's probably the best way to say it. Laos. He was trying to find a word to translate Savior. He asked villagers the word they used to describe the person who saved someone from a tiger's attack or a child falling off a cliff. Pa, they said. Pa. A couple of days later, the missionary set out on a raft with two two women to cross a river. The water was turbulent and the raft flipped. The missionary grabbed the two women and swam with them to shore. The missionary asked them, what word they would use to describe saving them from drowning. Not pa, but "shea," they responded. Pa is when you reach down to help someone from above, and "shea is when you were in the water yourself. Miller writes, that's what Jesus did. He went into the depths of the water and pulled us out. A real Savior who became like us, lived with us, gave his life for us. Have you ever thought, and maybe this Christmas season you did, have you ever thought why Jesus had to become a man to save us? Why could he have just pronounced us saved from his heavenly throne? The answer is that God God was wronged when man sinned. Therefore, a man had to pay the punishment for offending a holy and righteous God. Since man sinned, only man could pay the punishment to God. Yet all men and women are born sinners, meaning a perfect sinless man could not be found. Therefore, Jesus had to become a man. He had to lead a sinless life in order to pay our debt of sin to God. It was the only way. It's the only way it could line up. You see, our, our celebration of Christmas has to, it has to look all the way to Good Friday all the way to Easter Sunday, if we fail to connect Bethlehem to Calvary, we will have merely a baby Christianity, or maybe no Christianity at all. Christ came into the world to save sinners. The incarnation is essential to the gospel message. It is not an event in, in, in human history. It is the event in human history. Deity dwelling among us. And then deity dying among for us. That's the second thing we see from verse 15. The gospel necessitates the incarnation. Last from verse 15, we see that the gospel is humbling. So it's true, it's incarnational, and it's humbling. On the front end of saying Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul makes the disclaimer that this is a trustworthy statement. We've covered that. On the back end of this great gospel statement, he makes a declaration. He writes, among whom I am the foremost. Some of your Bibles may translate foremost as as worst or first, or the King James Version translates it chief. And what you need to know is Paul is not grandstanding here. He's not giving himself to to pious exaggeration. This is not preacher talk by, by him calling himself the worst of all sinners. He really means this. Two other places Paul uses this sort of language. 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, I am the least of the apostles. Meaning, of all the apostles, he considered himself the least, the lesser, the last. And then in Ephesians 3, he says, I am the least of the saints. And Paul uses the title saints as a synonym for, for all Christians. So he's saying, I'm, I'm the least of all Christians, of all believers. And now here, he's putting himself as the worst in another category, sinners. You see the steady progression? In Paul's mind, he's moved from being the least of the apostles, which which still ain't bad, right? The apostles were a pretty solid group of guys. That would be like saying, I'm the worst athlete on the Oklahoma City Thunder, right? Still pretty good company. But then, to proclaiming himself the least of the saints... Then he states himself as being the worst, the chief of all sinners. Meaning, I, Paul, I need more grace than any human alive. Again, we question Paul's sincerity here. Is Paul really saying this? How can this be genuine? How how can he even know? How can he even know that he's the worst of all the sinners? Well, I think we can get a little closer to answering this by looking at the third chapter of the book of Philippians. Verses 5 and 6, Paul speaks of himself as being circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. In other words, Paul was from the right nation, he was of the right tribe, he was of the most religious order, a Pharisee, the the elite of the Jewish religious community, and most of all, he kept the law in his mind perfectly. How can such a man be history's worst sinner? Part of the answer lies in the fact that he was a Pharisee. Think about what the Bible has to say about those who are Pharisees. Matthew 3, 7, John the Baptist calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Matthew 9, 34, the Pharisees accused Jesus of driving out demons by the prince of demons, by the power of Beelzebul. So there's a blasphemer, a blaspheming element to their, to their work. Matthew 12, 2, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a sinner. Matthew 12, again, the Pharisees plotted how they would kill Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus referred to the Pharisees as a wicked and adulterous generation. Jesus accused the Pharisees of breaking the command of God for the sake of their tradition and for the sake of their own gain. Matthew 15, Jesus calls these Pharisees blind guides. Matthew 22, the Pharisees laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. Calls them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones and everything else unclean. Matthew 23, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You snakes, how will you escape being condemned to hell? In other words, the Pharisees of Paul's day, they they were a group of outwardly religious Jews, but they were sinners in every way. Paul would have been a poster child for the Pharisee movement. He even says so much in the book of Acts when he says that he was advancing in Judaism ahead of his contemporaries. That was the track that he was on. But the heart of Paul's claim to being the worst sinner lies here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In the middle of of, of chapter 1, Paul is giving his testimony. He's giving us further insight into his life of sin before his salvation. Verse 13 says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Stop there. The word for violent man or, or violent aggressor, as the New American Standard translates it, There we have an identification for the root cause of Paul's behavior. The root cause was pride. Hubristus is the word for violent man. Hubris is the form we use today. And it means that all of of Paul's religious activity in keeping the law and in persecuting the early church and in blaspheming Christ, it was done so that he might feel superior to everyone else. It was all pride. Paul had the very opposite of an inferiority complex. He had a violently aggressive superiority complex. He calls himself a violent aggressor, a man who tirelessly worked to feel superior. Which means, every time he recounted his testimony, every time he articulated the gospel, he has to ponder his hubristus. Is pride. And in Paul's mind, that, that violent pride is what qualified him as the chief of all sinners. The worst. I wonder, do we classify pride this way? Sure, we all confess to pride. It's sort of a safe sin to confess because it's general and fairly universal. We all see it in our lives. But to Paul, his desire for superiority, his violent passion to be the best, was exactly what made him the worst. Do we have a grasp? Do we see the insidious nature of pride? In the chapter titled The Great Sin in the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this He says, If we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. By his own confession, Paul's entire pre-conversion life had been a project in acting on his superiority. Religious, moral, intellectual, Therefore, his Christian life, not his life of, of baseless, pharisaical religion, but his new Christian life was a project in true gospel humility. Folks, the gospel is humbling. It's not humiliating, but it's humbling. It puts us in a class that hubris would never allow for us to put ourselves. It puts us in a place where we can genuinely say, as Charles Spurgeon once said, that I am a lump of sin, a heap of unworthiness. And not not because that's just the sort of thing that Christians should say, but because because we know our testimony. We know who we are. The gospel is humbling. It's true, it's incarnational, it's humbling. Let's continue. Chapter 1, verse 16. There we have some words on Paul's conversion. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's conversion is in view here. And his point is that because he is the worst or, or the chief of sinners, his conversion not only serves him personally, in providing that true gospel humility, but it serves the church universally. Verse 16 is pointing out that, it, that his conversion serves as an example. The word is, is hupa tuposis, which means he's not just a type, a, a tupos, but he's a hypertype. A hypertype, an enduring example through the generations. Meaning, if Paul can be saved, anyone can be saved. So Paul's conversion is typological. It's hyper-typological. Any and all sinners can look to Christ and say, Jesus saved Paul. Paul persecuted the church. Paul killed Stephen. Paul blasphemed the name of Christ. Jesus saved Paul. Point being, there are no sins that you have committed that Jesus cannot or will not forgive you from. Jesus says to you, look at Paul. Look at Paul. I suffered to save Paul, the worst sinner. Come receive salvation and be clean. Be clean, be cleansed on the inside, be restored, be made new. Be used without reservation in the ministry of the church. Look at Paul. Perhaps you still think that you've committed too many sins. Or all the wrong sins that, that God will turn away from you because you're too wicked. Paul's testimony says, whatever, look at me. I'm your example of Christ's awesome patience and his total forgiveness. God promises that if you come to Christ in repentance and faith, that he will receive you, forgive you, restore you to himself so that you can know him and love him and serve him. Won't you come? Won't you be a part of that? That's what first 16 is saying and perhaps that's what you really need to hear this morning perhaps that's the meaning of christmas for you this year that christ came to save you and perhaps you are the worst of sinners yeah that sin the one you hide the one you're so ashamed of the one you don't want anybody to come near or know about that sin christ Saves you from that. Cleanses you, purifies you, makes you perfect and spotless as his righteousness is able to do. And you lay hold of that simply by trusting in him. Again, not by cleaning it up yourself, not by doubling down your efforts, not by getting more religious, but by absolutely breaking and confessing your sin the way Paul here has confessed his own sin. Paul's conversion proves that we are all Welcome in Christ It's typological It's also eschatological Big word Most of you know that eschatology is the study of of Last things Or what some people call the end times And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention That Paul is focusing On an eschatological reality An end times reality As he reflects upon his conversion His conversion came on the road to Damascus We see it in Acts chapter 9 He was knocked down by the pure light of Jesus Christ, blinded by his glorious majesty, given grace to see his need for a true Messiah. The Messiah reached down, found the worst sinner, the most unlikely of all converts, saved him, makes him a prototype as to what the gospel can do in any heart. And where this intersects with eschatology is that ultimately the scriptures state that there will be a revival amongst the Jewish people that they will look upon the one whom they have pierced, and like Saul, they will be radically converted. This end times event will display most vividly Christ's long-suffering, his patience with his chosen people, the Jews, a conversion that that finds its best example. Again, it's hypertype in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, a man who, who proclaimed himself the Hebrew of Hebrews. So verse 16 shows us Paul's conversion is typological and eschatological. And then lastly, let's look at verse 17. Verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. This is an extremely suitable conclusion to a beautifully simple enunciation of the gospel of which Paul's own history is really a living sample or a pattern. From verse 17, we see that the salvation of a sinner is doxological, which is to say it it elicits praise. All Paul can do upon reflecting upon the truth of the gospel and the wonder of his conversion is burst out in praise. I believe it was John MacArthur who I heard say, salvation will produce a worshiper. If you are a Christian, your heart should leap with praise when you think of your conversion. That's what's happening with Paul here. He's thinking of his conversion, and his heart is leaping with, with praise as he thinks upon the gospel's power. And he breaks here from his instructions to Timothy, and he bursts out into this doxology. He cannot keep his eyes on himself or on his testimony He simply has to praise God for who he is, for his greatness, for his otherness. That that is the exact opposite of hubristus. It's the exact opposite of the violent pride that he alluded to in verse 13. This kind of praise is the the antithesis of relentlessly pursuing superiority. Because to stop and proclaim God's reign as king, that implies that you are not king. You are not superior. God alone is superior. Paul can only think of God and his honor and his glory forever. He does this in four ways. He expresses this praise in four ways. That God is the eternal king. So God is the king of the past, the present, and the future. Who else can make that claim? None else. No one else directs and superintends the events of human history. Nobody knows what will take place in this next year, 2015. Yet God has always known. He is eternal king. He's also the immortal king, the text says. God is incorruptible. He is imperishable. He has no sell-by date. This world is running down. We're diminishing our resources. Your body is running down. I'm getting old, gray hairs, and less and less of those hairs... The vapor of our life consists, this vapor that our life life consists of, it's it's vanishing. There's corruption and erosion on every front, but God is not eroding. He conquered death. He's immortal king. He's invisible king. In the children's catechism that my children were quizzed, quizzed with when they were a little bit younger, we would always ask, can you see God? And they answer, I cannot see God, but He can always see me. And this may be the most frustrating of the qualities here that He's invisible. It drives one of my daughters crazy. She longs to, to see God. I have to remind her that just because He is invisible does not mean He is unknowable. To be invisible means He's without limits, He's without boundaries. He's tangible, but He's not confined by anything. I simply say to her, do you want to see God? Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures, and there you will see God. Eternal king, immortal king, invisible king, says here he's the only king, monotheo. God is incomparable and unique. He has no rivals, nothing compares to him. You shall have no other gods before him, not money, not grades, not your marriage, not internships or or the right schools you're getting into, not security, not control nothing, he's the only king for you it's of these qualities we sing when we sing the old Walter Chalmers Smith song immortal, invisible God only wise in light, inaccessible hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days almighty, victorious Thy great name we praise. Salvation, which is why we're here this morning, which is why we had ten songs of music. Salvation is doxological. Honor and glory forever and ever belongs to God. Give Him His due. Songs, praises, lives, let it be so in your life. All of this, by way of conclusion, brings to mind another famous saint guy by the name of John Newton. Newton was a slave trader in the 1700s. He was converted and became an Anglican priest. In fact, the title of his spiritual autobiography is a, is a co-opting of this text here in 1 Timothy. It's called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Newton was known for being a deeply humble and penitent man. And once, as he reflected on the Old Testament text that he was to preach on, He was pondering his former life as a slave trader. Newton wrote these famous words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once blind, but now I see. Did you know that some people are changing the line in that song that says, That saved a wretch like me? They're changing it to that saved and set me free. That's what they're changing it to. Because wretch, you know, I don't know if we want to go there. I don't know if we really want to call ourselves that. That that doesn't really help us in the self-esteem category. Don't be fooled, however. Wretch is a vital term. You need to see yourself as a wretch. You need to, like Paul, embrace that. Get in line behind the worst of sinners. Be counted with him. Because when you do that, you can be saved for it's a trustworthy statement, remember? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, wretched ones, ones of the worst kind. If that is what you are, Christmas really means something to you. If that is not what you are, I'm not sure what you celebrated this week. Let's celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world with a mission. Not to give us a warm story that produces sentimental melodies, but his mission was to live, live a perfect life and to die a heinous death and to do that for sinners of the worst kind. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this lesson from Paul on why it is Jesus, your son, came into the world.